0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Thursday. March the 29th, 2012, and this is episode 869. If you've noticed this week, and it won't probably happen again for a while, I just like, I notice little quirks with numbers. The uh, the ending number of the episode has been the same as the ending number of the date for a few days in a row. So yesterday was 868, it was March 28, and today's 869, it's March 29. Sometimes numbers line up that way, and what does it mean? Absolutely nothing reminding you that because, of course, this is 2012 and 12-21-2012. The world is supposed to end. I'm kind of disappointed. I know I'm going off track of the typical uh, intro segment here, but I just have to say this, right? So yesterday, I get one of my favorite catalogs to get. Uh, the Cheaper Than Dirt catalog. I love when that one comes. It's got all these ammunition deals and all these new guns and stuff. And they had the AR-7 survival rifle for $199. I thought, you know, that's a good deal and all. And then I look, and I see at the top, it's like a counter, and it says like X many days and hours and minutes. And, and then it says, you know, countdown to 2012, like, you know, get ready. And it has like guns, supplies, food. And I'm like, oh, my God. Even Cheaper Than dirt's playing into this stupidity. This absolute moronic stupidity, and it drives me freaking nuts. And I'm going to tell you something. I know a lot of people that are out there that listen to this show are in the industry. You sell long-term storage food. You sell shelters. You do all that stuff, right? And that's great. And there's a place for that in the market, and you need to build that based on value and reality. And those of you that are dumbasses, that are dumbasses that are scaring people into doing this stuff, You know what? In 2013, your business is going to tank, and you absolutely, 1,000% deserve for your business to tank because you're playing on people's fears. I know I sound angry. I am. I'm angry because today I have to address your fears, your real fears, and the fear you should actually have while I'm coming down on somebody else for being dumbass about the way that they do it. Today I have to talk about the economy. I have not talked about the economy for a long time. I'm going to give you some ways to look at the economy using metal, pricing that you've probably never even thought about before. Some of it we've actually covered before. I'm going to talk about where the economy's going. I'm going to give you some numbers today off of shadow stats, which many of you are probably familiar with, that the media will never tell you. The real unemployment rate, what is it? How bad is it really? What is the real rate of inflation? What has been done to our economy? And where do we go from here? The Dow's at an all-time high. See, this show started, somebody emailed me, and I'll probably actually do their, their question on Monday because it's more specific. But it opened up with, right now, even though the economy is still technically screwed, the Dow's at an all-time high. And they're saying this and they're saying that. And I thought, hey, i got to talk about this because people are going to fall into it. Where is the economy right now? I'm going to tell you where it is. It's right where I said it would be in March of 2009. And I'm going to prove that to you today by playing a couple excerpts from a show I did in 2009. And then we're going to take a look at the economy, how we're going to go forward with it, what's been done to it, and how false the recovery really is and how honest money shows us that. We're going to do that right after we take care of our sponsors and take care of our typical housekeeping. And I get my blood pressure down a little bit so I don't snap a gasket before we get even into the topic of today's show. So sponsor of the day number one today is Shelf Reliance you know why I love Shelf Reliance? Because they have these really great racks to store your food. And instead of having to go out and buy like pallets of food, you can eat what you store and store what you eat. But if you want long-term storage food without a bunch of fear and hype, you can go to Shelf Reliance and get the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. It will be really good food that if you decide, you know, I just don't feel like cooking tonight uh, and I want something easy and quick – And you grab something out of your long-term storage and you open it up and you cook it to see what it's like, you'll probably like it. If you don't like it, it's because you don't like what it is. So if you had, I don't know, something with macaroni, you didn't like macaroni. It's not because they suck. It's because you don't like macaroni, okay? And I, I don't think we should eat too much macaroni anyway. But there you go. That's what I'm saying is it's good quality food. That is a, just a straight up replacement of what we have in the non-long-term storage, uh, realm. And I think that's what we need to be looking at. I, you know, when I was on Glenn Beck, I was there with the guy from foodinsurance.com, and of course when they said, what's the number one thing you need to have with a, if you can only do one thing in your home, what is it? And he said, long-term storage food. And the ham radio guy says, ham radio. And if, come on, you know, really? What you do is what the one, and, and my thought is, well, what about water? <laughs> What about water for all that freeze-dried food? Um, so it's important that we have a supply of water. But I guess my point is that you know a lot of people sell long-term storage food, but do you really want to eat it? Is it really going to taste good? Can you really use it as a substitute for what you eat now? Uh, with Thrive, you can do that. Next up today, and this is going to fit right in with today's show, but again, it wasn't planned that way. Um, sponsor of the day number two today is silverandgoldshop.com. When I'm done with today's show, you're going to make silver part of your investment investments. You're going to do it. If you don't do it, it's only going to be because you don't have any money to invest in silver. That is the only way you're going to be able to prevent yourself from buying some silver in the next few months. I don't want you to freak out. I don't want you to go take $5,000 tomorrow morning and buy a bunch of silver with it. I'm sure my sponsor would love that. Hey, I'm about to start selling silver in the uh, tspcopper.com shop. Uh, I would love it if you did that financially, but I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to act in fear, but I want you to methodically continue to add hard money to your investment portfolio. And I want your investment portfolio to be your house, your car, anything that's going to outlast the typical way America does business. Anything that's going to be here for you, even if the systems fail, I want you to put in there. And I want you to put some of that into silver and gold. And one place you can find some really cool products to do that with is silverandgoldshop.com. So check them out today. Again, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. She will take care of you. She will be honest with you. And if something happens like I, – I mean, I don't know that this happens all the time, but I've heard this from quite a few people. I put an order in. The price of metal went down between the morning and the evening. She didn't ship till the evening. And since the price of the, the coins went down, silver went down a dollar an ounce, my order was adjusted down. I ordered five coins. She took five bucks off the order. I, I've never heard that. I, I I've never heard anybody in the metal industry do. I'm not sure how you you do that, honestly, because now I got to do a refund. But she's done it, and and God, folks, that speaks for honesty. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. Next up today, I want you to uh, consider uh, hooking up with me if you haven't done so on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just go to the Survival Podcast. Click the links there for those services and, you know, friend me up on Facebook. Actually, you know, join my fan page on Facebook. Hook up with me on Twitter. Uh, guys, if you do that, you'll get information from me that doesn't usually get on the show. And the YouTube stuff, we got a ton of video coming. I don't always say that, but see what happens is then what happens is I actually do give you a ton of video. I'll put out like 12 in like two weeks, and then there'll be like this big dry spell and like another big avalanche will come through. Well, the avalanche is getting ready to come. We got a bunch of stuff. I got a new hollow site from Brunells to review for you. I got a great little scope for your Rugers, uh, your Ruger 1022s, your Marlin 22s and things like that to review. Something that's finally made me say, you know, maybe it's not always going to be a fixed four power. I've got my swales booming. I've got to do some stuff for, so there's a bunch of stuff coming to YouTube. Make sure you sign up to, uh, to get updates from me on YouTube as well. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. That's all I'm going to say about it today. Uh, I want to get into the topic. So, the first thing I want to do for you is I want to play for, for you an excerpt uh, from a show I did in 2009, March of 2009, and it was about what I called financial addiction and false recovery. So here's a piece of it. Remember, back in 2009, I was in my car driving surrounded by ass clowns on the freeways of Dallas, Texas, between Arlington and Frisco, at speeds from one to 80 miles an hour. So the sound is going to be different, the quality is going to be different. But listen to the content and listen to what I told you back then. And what do you see how it relates to what we're doing today? To get the drug addict through his recovery process, off the methadone, and onto reality, you must separate the addict from the influences that made him an addict in the first place. He cannot be around other addicts who have not gone through recovery. He cannot be around drug dealers. Those two are an absolute requirement. You cannot be a recovering addict surrounded by other addicts. You can't be a recovering alcoholic and hang an alcoholic and hang out at a bar. It will not work. One day you may be able to walk back into that bar and be strong enough to say, give me a Coke, give me a ginger ale on ice. But if you're still in the recovery process, Process. If you walk into the bar, you'll start drinking again. And if you walk into a bar where the bartender wants you to drink, or you go past a drug dealer where the drug dealer wants you to use, and they keep pressuring you, and you're surrounded by peer pressures, they say, hey, man, come on back to the way it used to be. Remember, it was good then. Before you get through the recovery, you're going to relapse. And that's how most, you know, most folks relapse. You're thinking, is this a drug show or is this an economic show or is this a survival podcast? It's a survival podcast, folks. Stick with me because here we go. Here's how we make the bridge. We have a dealer in our society. It is the Federal Reserve System that tells us, here's money, go spend it. They have an entire cartel or network of dealers which are the lending institutions, regional banks, credit card companies, large financial institutions, and government-subsidized financial institutions. It's an entire d- drug-dealing network to deal cheap money. And it's going to keep putting the pressure on us, and we're all recovering addicts here. Hey, come on. Home loans are 4.9%. It's a great time to buy. And it is a great time to buy, and that's the danger. What they're trying to do is turn the money faucet back on to get everybody spending again. Because if we just got everybody spending again, it would repower and refuel the economy. And all that will do is get everybody high again. It'll push the balance of our stock portfolios up. We'll start to see the money flow. We'll start to see the average person driving a new car again instead of a car that's four or five years old. And everybody will go back to being a crack addict on the money. And when that happens, because of the way we got into this mess, that's where the danger is going to come. And what's going to happen when that day comes and the money starts to flow again is an inflation spiral upward like we've not seen, honestly, in this country for ever. I think this will be the worst inflation we've ever seen in the United States ever. Now, I don't think it's going to be Germany-Weimar Republic inflation. Not this time. I I think we might be setting ourselves up for the bottom of the barrel, you know, the final crash of the addict in the next cycle. It could be one more after that. I don't know. I just don't see it yet. I don't feel it yet because of the way I see things playing out. And there's two things that are going to drive this inflationary process. One, the Fed continues to grow the money supply. Now, I'm going to link to an article that says I'm wrong about that, that says it's growing but nowhere near as much as they say it is, and I'm going to do that for a reason. I want you to look at the graph in it, and what you're going to see is that the total money supply, the M3, which is all the U.S. dollars in existence, has been in decline since July, and I want you to look at that and go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense at all. During that time, the Fed pushed $2 trillion into the economy that they won't even tell us where it went. The governments throw $700 billion at this bailout, $800 billion at this bailout, all this money. The money wasn't just taken from one place and moved to another. It was all created. It was all part of inflating the supply. They stuffed banks with money from one end of the economy to the other. There's another backdoor couple trillion dollars that we haven't been told about in addition to the $2 trillion that Bloomberg and the Senate and the Congress is asking the Fed to disclose where it is, what are the terms, but yet the money supply fell. It didn't just fall. Now, everybody's reporting in the news now like it's been falling in January and February because the, uh, the banks are opening up their lending. But you'll see it fall all the way from July. And you go, well, that makes sense. There's less money. But no, there wasn't less money. People lost money. But when somebody loses money, somebody makes money. That's the way the economy works. The dollars don't, you know, blink off into nothingness. They change hands. Money is energy. It's not created. It's not destroyed. It only changes in form. It's important that we remember that because the Fed breaks the rules by creating more of it without having a corresponding index to create it from. And what I mean is not only is there no gold standard anymore, we don't even say, okay, well, the output of the U.S. is X, so we can only have so much in Y dollars. We just make it whatever we think needs to be done. So what we have to ask ourselves is where did all that money really go? Now, I'm going to I'm going to sound a little bit tinfoil hat here, folks. I think it was... Um, I think it was converted and disappeared and money laundered. That's what I think happened to it. I think that we were so in a hole with credit fault to swaps and foreign money against United States real estate that the Fed took at least $2 trillion, made it into dollars, put it in the hands of these foreign credit uh, credit default swap people that were ready to probably just about foreclose on our country and cut off the money supply. They converted the U.S. dollars into euros or, you know, whatever, to, for, to various foreign currencies, and then the Fed pulled the money back out and disappeared it, and it's gone. And you say, how in the hell is that possible? Well, if you go back and listen to my show on derivatives, what I explained to you in that show is that the, the banks were creating fake money. They were counterfeiting money with derivatives, where I would buy a bet against the fact that a whole group of homeowners were going to default, and then I would sell the bet to somebody else who would buy the bet, and then they would sell it back to somebody else, and somebody would put ten of them together in a package and resell them over and over again. It sounds confusing, and it's confusing as hell. But the reality is every time you're taking one of these these chopped up loan vehicles and reselling it, you're creating money that doesn't exist. And when the whole thing falls apart, you have a giant hole where there's no money. And what the Fed did, in my estimation, is they backfilled the hole. This is why all the congressmen and senators were going, hey, the lending's dried up, so we gave you guys money, and you're sitting on it. Where did it go? They're not sitting on it. It is gone. It's not coming back. It's gone forever. They spent it. And they didn't spend it on a thing. The thing they bought was destroyed, and they paid the bill for it, and the money went into foreign hands to starve off a complete shutdown of foreign nations being willing to put money into this country. That's what I think happened, and if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Let's say that you're an idiot. And let's say that I am a dumber idiot than you are, so I, at the Bank of Jack, give you the household of idiocy $50,000 in unsecured consumer credit. Now, you go out and you buy a a 65-inch plasma screen TV, and you buy just a whole bunch of crap. You just spent $50,000 on consumer-level goods. Ten years later, you owe me $60,000 because of how slowly you've been repaying your $50,000 line of credit back. All the stuff you bought is now gone. It's broken down. It's old. It's been recycled. It's been donated. It's been given away. You haven't valued it. Or even somebody broke in your house and stole some of it. You had a fire. I don't know. But five years later, you owe me 60 instead of 50. You've already paid me a bunch of money back, but it was only enough to starve off some of the interest. And now you have no underlying asset because it's gone. Now if an angel, right, the federal government bails you out, the angel investor comes in and hands you $60,000 and says go back to spending money, and if you're smart, or if you have no choice, because I'm about to foreclose on you, and you take the $60,000 and you give it to me, and the and the Bank of Jack is in France, then everybody looks at the household of idiocy and goes, why aren't you spending money? Well, you don't have any money, do you? Well, why don't you have any nice things? Well, you didn't have any nice things already. You don't have any money to buy anything with. And when you come back to me and you ask me for a loan again, I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't think that you're going to have an angel pull through for you again and you almost defaulted. I'm not giving you money again. You actually might want to go listen to that. That was episode 156 of the Survival Podcast. We weren't anywhere even near a year old yet when I did that show. Uh, And I talk a lot more about how... As the recovery comes, how rising prices create the illusion of a rising market. But the one thing I really wanted you to hone in on there is I put that information out before anybody else did about what happened to the money, where the money went. Back when I did that episode and I was talking about they put all this money in the economy and yet the money supply contracted Everybody, including like these, all the even contrarian economists, were going, oh, Like they couldn't find their ass with their own hands. Where did the money go? I don't know. They pumped all this money. they got to be lying to us. No, the money vanished. It went into foreign hands, was converted into foreign con- currency, was used to fill a hole, and disappeared. And you gave it to them. And all of that money was created and destroyed in a short period of time, and it added... To the inflation that we're seeing today, because you, you you can't cheat the system that way. So the 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 average person that doesn't think deeply would look at this and go, well, then it's like a mulligan, right? They we gave them the money, the money's gone, the money's we didn't pay anything for it. It's no, because the dollar then becomes weakened by the other currencies, and then the dollar falls. And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is go over to uh, Shadow Government Statistics and cl- and uh, click on their their link for the U.S. dollar, and you'll see that the, the, the official t- statistic shows the dollar in massive decline, and then the real statistic just shows that, well, it's, it's a little bit worse. So the dollar in, in value uh, in 2008 went up into 2009. Right about the time I was talking about this, the value of the dollar strengthened. Right when I was saying that this is what was going on, and that was because of that apparent contraction. But if you go look at it, and you look at what happened in later in 2009 through 2010, 2012, the dollar went back into free fall. It was a momentary, uh, little ping up, and then it just, it just went falling on down from there. And I want to do something today that we've kind of done before, But we've never quite done it this way before. And I think it's going to be an interesting thing for you to hear some numbers and really think about this. I did a show a long time ago on silver where I talked about what you could have bought with a silver quarter in 1964 and what a silver quarter would buy you today. And one of the things that's really easy to use to help explain to people the value of honest money is simply to say, well, if you had a quarter in 1964, you could roughly buy a little bit more than a gallon of gasoline. And if you have a 1964 quarter today, I have one in my hand as I speak to you, tapping it on my desk, this quarter that's in my hand right now will still buy roughly the same amount of gasoline that would have bought in 1964, but you can't fill a coke bottle with gasoline a little coke bottle with gasoline for a 2012 quarter nobody nobody sees it's worth anything more than 25 cents and the value of the individual cent has gone down right but the the intrinsic worth the 90% silver content of the 1964 or earlier quarter has maintained its value well that's a really long look at things so I decided that I would make my starting point the starting point of the show for today's experiment, at least in the beginning, the first parts of it. And we look at what silver and gold buys and how it relates to what we're being told that's happened from 2008 till now. Because the the recovery, if we look at the Dow and things like that, has apparently happened. It's It's, it's almost back to par. Hell, we're heading for new all-time highs. It looks like the market might hit a new all-time high this year. Gee, just in time for the election. But is the market really up or is the value of the money down enough to make the market look like it's up, which if you go back and listen to that entire episode was part of what I told you was going to happen to create this illusion of a false recovery, open up the spending buckets again, and get people into the mindset of the the addict that says, screw it, I was never an addict, this is fine, and goes back to using dope again, which in this case, the dope is the money. So if I go to June 2008, Silver was trading at about $10 an ounce. Gold was trading at about $800 an ounce. And we were being told that both of them were very high numbers, and to be very careful in, in investing in either one, and they were terrible investments. Dave Ramsey told you. Remember Dave Ramsey, who I love on debt but not on investing, said, oh, they're terrible, and they have a history of being a terrible investment. Um, today, to the penny, silver this morning when I got these numbers was trading at $31.93 an ounce. Gold was trading at about $1,656 an ounce. That means silver, since June 2008, is up roughly 210%, and gold is up 107%. That's not news to anyone. I know, I know that. But, what's interesting though is if we look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the leading index, and a lot of people like to look at the S&P because it's, it's, it's better if you're a contrarian, uh, and you want to say things are bad, if you look at the S&P because that's, it's underperformed the Dow. Uh, or we can look at the NASDAQ, but the, the Dow actually is a really great instrument to determine the financial health of the United States. Now, they do some things to fudge it, like if somebody starts to suck, they throw them out and bring a new, better-performing company in, but it is a, an index that shows us well-performing, profit-producing companies in the United States and how they're performing. It's kind of a scorecard for th- that group of companies, and that is a good indicator of How the nation is performing if we believe the number so the number in June or yeah, June of 2008 was 11,800 that means if you wanted one share of the index you're buying a share of the Dow Jones Industrial Average Index it would have cost you 11,800. Okay, interesting. Um, now, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in, in, in the index weighting, and somebody with a brilliant financial mind could say, Jack, it doesn't really take $13,000 to buy one share of everything in the Dow, but in essence, it really kind of does. And if, You hear the Dow Jones went up 35 points. It means to buy all the stocks and you take into account what they call a divisor at 4 p.m. today or the closing time of the market. It would have cost you 35 more dollars than it would have cost to buy the stock the day before at the same time. So it's pretty easy to just call it dollar for dollar. So $11,800 to buy a share of the Dow in 2008, $13,080 to buy a share of the Dow in 2012. That sounds like things are good. We've gone up from 11 to 13. 13 is bigger. That has to be good. But let's look at it. If we if we convert the Dow to dollars and say $11,800 a share, if I had one ounce of silver, right? if I wanted to buy one share of the Dow using silver ounces in 2008, I would have had to use 1,180 ounces. So that means in 2008, one share of the Dow Jones Industrial Average was equivalent to about 1,180 ounces of silver. Today, in 2012, if I wanted to buy one share of the Dow with silver, I could do it with 409 ounces. So the value of the Dow, when it moved from 11 to 13, actually fell from 1,100 rough ounces of silver to 400. Ever think of it that way? Just, just saying. I mean, I know it's not a one-size-fits-all, doesn't reveal the whole picture type of thing, silver's way up and all, but... It is interesting if you look at it that way. And if we look at the basis value of precious metal over the history of the country, we know that it hedges inflation very, very well. It's a good indicator of what inflation actually is. So let's look at gold. In 2008, you would have uh, needed about 14 and three-quarter ounces of gold to buy one share of the Dow. 14 ounces and some change in gold. Call it 15 ounces. In 2012, you could buy one share of the Dow for 7.89, so, so, you know, call it eight, so call it 15 and eight. So the value in, in the Dow in gold ounces has fell from 15 ounces of gold to eight. More accurately, 14 and three quarters to 7.8 ounces, but about seven ounces of gold value per share lost is a way to look at it. Let's look at something even more interesting. If we use, uh, we say a home in America, you can buy a decent home in America today for $150,000. I've never actually spent more than $150,000 on a house. Uh, I sold a house for more than one hundred and fifty, dollars but I've never spent more than one hundred and fifty dollars on a house. So we say $150,000 house. If I wanted to buy a $150,000 house using silver, I said, dude, will you take silver? And the guy's like, yeah, I'll take silver. Fine, I can cash it. I don't care. Uh, and in, 2008, if I wanted a $150,000 house, I would need a, you know, about 10 bucks an ounce. I would have needed about 15,000 ounces. 15,000 ounces of silver would have bought me a $150,000 house in 2008. In 2012, I can buy that same house with $4,712 in, or 4712 ounces of silver. So, one way to look at it is the buying power of silver has gone up. But another way to look at it is how much value has your house really lost and how is it hidden from you because we priced it in U.S. dollars, which have what the Fed calls elasticity. We need elasticity so we can adjust things. That means we need to be able to lie and lie on a global scale by pumping our dollar, which backs all the other phony money, in and out based on whatever we need to do at any given time. So another way to look at this is if you had a $150,000 home, in 2008, it was worth 15,000 ounces of silver, and today it's only worth 4,712 ounces of silver. That's the value your homes actually lost when we use honest money as a gauge. If you prefer gold, that $150,000 house could have been bought with 187 and a ounces of gold in 2008, and today could be purchased with 90 and a half ounces of gold. So the value of a $150,000 home in America between 2008 and 20, uh, 2012 has fallen by about 90 ounces of gold. That's the value in honest money. Um, That's interesting, isn't it? And and it's something that most people will never hear because, trust me, your government and mainstream media does not want you to hear that. I, I think most contrarian investors and alternative news sites that know the economy sucks wouldn't even put it to you that way. And... When we start to look at the real value of a dollar in silver and gold, we start to learn some some really interesting things when we do that, and we can do it with some real basic math and see, well, what's a dollar worth? Everybody wants to look at silver and say, well, now silver's worth $31.93, or gold is now worth $1,656. Well, what if we turn it around the other way and say, what is a dollar worth in relation to silver. How how does that fractionalize out? And I don't want to throw too many numbers at you, so let's not even do gold, let's just do silver. And basically what we know is that when silver was ten dollars an ounce, that one dollar represented one tenth of an ounce. So a dollar became equivalent to let's say a dime. Versus an ounce of silver. If a, if a silver ounce was considered a, a value of one dollar in, in 2008, then a paper dollar was worth a dime. See how that works? So, you know, you get those US silver eagles and they say one US dollar, one ounce of 999 pure silver. If we take that silver eagle at its face value, your dollar's worth a dime. Flash forward to 2012 and you get one thirty-first. One thirty-first of a dollar's value in the paper dollar. Basically that means in relation to the the concept of a 1 ounce of silver being a dollar in a, in a silver currency system that a that your your the value of your dollar fell from a dime to 3.2 cents in 4 years. That's another way to look at it. We can do some other things though that are pretty interesting by looking at pre-1964 quarters, or pre-65 actually, so 1964 and back quarters. Of course, 90% silver, I was just talking about them. But let's say it was the year was 1964 all over again. And for some quirky, weird reason, you decided to buy a house and you wanted to pay for it with rolls of quarters. And the person really wasn't in love with the idea, but hell, you take it to the bank and they put it in your bank account anyway. So fine, you want to pay in quarters? You can pay in quarters. Well, in 1964, the median price of a home in America was about thirteen thousand fifty dollars. And in 1964, a 1964 or earlier quarter was worth a quarter. No one cared that it was silver. All of them were silver. You got it—the dimes, the quarters, the fifty-cent, every the dollars—they were all silver. So, you would have needed 52,200 quarters to buy a house for quarters in 1964. In 2012, the average price of a median home in America is $167,000. If you wanted to pull off the same fee today and go to the bank and say, I want quarters to buy a house, it would be tough. You'd probably need a couple trucks to do this. You would need 668000 quarters. 668 1,000 quarters. All right. So how many 1964 quarters would it take to buy a house today? If you had the 1964 and earlier quarters that were made out of silver, how many quarters? Remember, it cost about 52,000 quarters in 1964 to buy a house. Today, those same quarters, it would cost you about 28,000 quarters. The price of housing in America has fallen by about 22,000, 24,000 quarters, 24,000 quarters, if we use the quarters that they made all the way up until 1964. Um, if you wanted to go back in time and use quarters today to buy the 1964 house, in other words, if you, so it, it took... 52000 quarters to equal $13,000 in 1964, it would only take 7,200 quarters roughly to equal the same 13000 So if you could buy the house at the cost of the 1964 house, using the value of today's quarters, it would only have cost you 7,200 quarters. And I know I kind of went into a lot there. Let's, let's do one more thing with numbers before I go forward with this and, and what it means to us. But let's look at the value of four quarters. Four quarters in 1964 were worth $1. That's what they were worth. Uh, no one cared that they were silver again. 1990, four quarters, four, four 1964 quarters, silver quarters, were worth $3.76 in intrinsic worth value. $3.76. So they went from a dollar to $3.76 in value from 1964 to 1990. Not a bad little return, considering you could have bought the quarters for face value, uh, for years and years after the whole silver debacle happened. Um, then in 2008, those four quarters were worth $7.23. They, they, they practically doubled in value. they was still just a U.S. quarter, but they doubled in value from 1990 to 2008. That was, uh, that was 18 years that took. So what do you think happened in the next four years? It went from $7.23 to $23.09 at today's current price. So the value of those four quarters tripled in four years. So it took initially over 50 years for the value to go up by three times. Then it was able to double in 18 years, which was an increase. You know, It was, it was a speeding up. But now it's gone up three times in four years. And nobody really thinks that silver prices are a quirk anymore. I mean, when it was up at fifty bucks, people were saying it was overvalued. I was saying it it was overvalued for the time, and it was, and it was not a good time to buy. Hopefully, you didn't buy a lot of silver at fifty bucks, forty-eight bucks, whatever it was. Um, But at this point, silver's found a strong floor between about twenty-eight and thirty-two dollars. It doesn't doesn't divulge much from that anymore. And we know that silver is being suppressed, so its actual value actually is probably higher than it is because there's a ton of short holdings on silver to suppress its value because, frankly, the bankers are afraid of it. They're afraid of what happens if it explodes. So... What does that mean about this false recovery? It exposes it, folks. That's what I'm trying to tell you today. These numbers expose the lie. Mike Gazer calls it a wonderful fiction, but he doesn't like silver and gold. I wonder if he listens to this show if it might change his tune a little bit. It also, you know, like Chris Dwayne on, and he was talking about how in the future you might be able to go out and buy a house with a few ounces of silver. Here's what I'd like to ask you. If somebody in 1964... Said, look man, right now it takes 52,000 quarters to buy a house. If you go to the bank and buy 7,000 quarters, stick them in a box, in 2012, your children or your grandchild will be able to take those 7,000 quarters and go buy a house. Would you have thought they were flapping nuts? especially if we said looking back to 1960 before we knew they were going to demonetize silver the way that they did by taking it out of our currency. You would have thought they were crazy. Now, I don't believe the pie in the sky. I'm going to go buy, take 10 ounces and buy a city park or something like that, that, that. Chris And I'm not sure that that's how far out he is, but just sometimes I feel that way. But it starts to make a lot more sense that silver will have real buying power if we go into hyperinflation uh, or if we even go into sustained high inflation or if the false recovery eventually plays itself out and blows up on the other side. Now, why do I call this a false recovery? Why can't I just be happy that the market's up to 13000 and people's 401k balances are coming back to where they were before, and because they've been making contributions during the down period, they're actually ahead now and they feel good about themselves? Because I know the number's a lie. Because honest money always shows us the lie. Now, if silver had spiked to $32 and it had been like at 12 bucks yesterday, was up to $32 today, and it, or only, let's say it was, it was at 8 bucks three months ago. And it was, it's, and it ran up to this number. I wouldn't use these numbers today because I'd say there's this big spike and we're not sure, but this is sustained. It's been higher back down and back up and, and equalized. This is a good indicator of the lie. But the bigger reason is, and if you listen to the episode I played an excerpt from, or you listen to some other episodes from around that time, the bigger reason that I can't just be happy is because I already said it was going to happen in 2009. What I said was that this is exactly what would happen. That they would pump the money, they would get it circulating again, people would get more confidence to start blowing money that they don't have, that none of the underlying fundamentals would change, but... But people would feel better. Profits would look higher in dollars due to the increase in commodity prices and in inflation. Inflation would create the illusion of a recovery. And the the second time around, and I didn't know, I I said I don't know how long it'll last. And I'm not telling you I know now, but the second time around, when this thing comes crashing down the next time, it's going to hurt a lot more than it did the first time and it's going to be, have much more severe consequences. One of the things that I've been saying is that one of the pieces that's going to cause all of this, these problems would be municipal bankruptcies, That more and more cities would go bankrupt. And Meredith something, I don't know what her name is, some economist has been on record with that for a long time, and people mock her and say, you know, municipal bonds are a great investment, and there's nothing to worry. It's sure something. I mean, Detroit, come on, it's Detroit. Of course Detroit's, I mean, come on. It's Detroit, you know? You ever see 8 Mile? Come on, it had to happen, you know? Well, what about Stockton, California, and Providence, Rhode Island? Those are two cities sitting on the verge of bankruptcy right now. Providence, Rhode Island, they've basically said it's almost unimaginable that it won't go bankrupt. How about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? You know, I mean, it it just and they they're just beginning to start. So what I don't think people get is what happens when these cities go through bankruptcy protection. Sooner or later, there has to come to a point where they say, "Wait a minute, we can't keep doing this anymore." And even if they come go through one and go and come out of it, they're not restructured to a point where they're they're cutting it off for the future because one of the biggest expenses they have or retirement programs of the city workers. Eventually, those pensions have to get cut. Nobody likes it. Nobody's happy about it. I'm not happy about it. I'm actually more concerned about it than most people are because I see the longer constant. I'm not just worried that Joe, who worked for the city for 30 years and was promised a pension, was told he was going to get X and now he's going to get Y, and the Delta sucks. And that in some cases, some people might not get anything. I feel for those people. I really do. But the system that was running behind the scenes there just was unsustainable. The other thing is don't think the real estate crash to this day isn't still part of the problem. Do you understand that many of these city governments, county governments, took the pension funds and put them into the mortgage-backed securities that imploded, that we paid for, that went to the foreign banks to bail them out, disintegrated into nothingness, what I was talking about in 2009, and now the value of those pension funds has been devalued by the loss on those mortgage-backed securities. And what did I say about that money? It's gone. They spent it. It's not coming back. It's gone. So these things have to fail. So the pension funds fail, the cities themselves fail, and the bigger consequences, what happens... When the cumulative effect of thousands and thousands of people expecting pensions from city and county governments failed to be bailed out because the number's too big. Instead of too big to fail, it's too big to bail. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's a statement from Jack Spear. No, I've never heard it anywhere before. Too big to bail. It will be mainstream one day, folks. You heard it here first. Too big to bail. That's what's going to be. Too big to fail? Now we have too. I can hear the talking head saying it now. Well, we all remember years ago when we heard that certain banks and certain institutions were too big to fail. Now we're hearing a new phrase. Too big to bail. That's right. As hundreds of cities declare bankruptcy across the United States, state and federal government agencies say they're too big to be bailed out. There's not enough money to do it. Too big to bail. So it's Too Big to Bail rises, it's not just the implosion. It's all of those people that were expecting the money so that they can live now have to cut their spending. And in a consumer-driven economy, what happens when people cut spending, folks? It begins a spiral. And this is what people, I, I don't think they get. We are holding this thing together with so many lies, with so many fictions, with so many fallacies, with so much cooking of the books, and every central, it's not just us, every central bank in the world is doing this. And it's like a great big giant blanket or a quilt. Okay? But instead of being built in like a net meshed fashion, it's built in a simple weave. And what happens when somebody pulls a thread that's hanging off the bottom of something like that? It just starts to unravel, and you, you can't put it back together again. All you can do is keep pulling. And every time you pull one row and you think you're done, another row comes out, and another row comes out, and another row comes out, and it just starts to disappear. The quilt that was becomes a ball of string, or actually a tangle of string, and no one can ever put it back together again. It's, it's done. You have to start over. You have to make a new blanket or a new quilt. Well, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And you you want to know why I, I tell you to invest in silver and gold. I don't know what else to tell you to do. Now, again, I'm not the all-in guy. I am telling you, do not panic. Do not freak out. That we have time. That there's a lot of crap that's going to happen before that string starts getting pulled on. But we can see it now, okay? Before, they had it covered up and they had a little piece of tape on it. We can see the end sticking out now. And people are starting to pick at it. And they're starting to see a ravel or two come out. And it's only about how many of those little loops can come out before somebody just loses it and can't take it anymore. Confidence fails or interest interest rates rise or people lock up the money, refuse to loan it or the Fed can't buy it. There's a million ways it plays out. But basically what that is, somebody goes, I can't take it anymore. What's under there? And yanks it. And it starts to unravel. And that's what happens. And I've been having some back-and-forth conversations with Chris Dwayne, and he sees this all as a good thing. And I think getting over the fear is important, but do you know what you're afraid of before you get over being afraid of it? And I'm not sure he does. I think he knows that certain places will look really bad. I don't know if he knows how bad the whole place will look. I really don't. Um, People are going to snap when this happens. And there may be places where things aren't that bad, at least logistically. Like people aren't being shot and stabbed and people aren't burning down streets. But there will be places where it does happen. And there will be more places where it does happen than you can imagine. A lot of you guys live in suburbs or some nicer cities and you think not here. Look up how many people in your city and county are on the government dime, are on the government dole. Or on food stamps and and what have you, and you'll find it's a big number. Where if you have a large number of people, you have a significant percentage of a large number of people. That's a mob. In 2011, I believe it was, I, I, I ran a piece for you guys where these people were in Atlanta, and the government screwed up and didn't put the money on their food cards, their food stamp cards. And they were supposed to get their money on Monday, and the offices, it was a holiday, so the offices were closed on Monday, and the money didn't get there. And they were all basically told, y- you'll get your money Tuesday. As soon as we open up, we'll we'll fix it. It's it, it's not missing. It's We're going to take care of it. One day, one day, without a deposit on their food stamp card, they had a mob surrounding the, 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 the state building in Atlanta. They were ready to pull the wall down. To make someone, give them their food stamp card money, there was no one there except maybe the janitor. It was closed. They were still going to tear it down. That was one day. How about one month? How does that hit you? I think that there are some people that are under some type of romantic delusion that when the system fails, things will get better. And the reality is they might eventually Where they might get a lot worse. That it will be the end of intrusion onto our civil liberties. It might be greater intrusion. What does government do with a crisis, folks? They never let it go to waste. So a lot of the things that a government would like to do that it can't do in time of peace, it can get away with in time of war, including if that war is riots in its own streets. And people that would normally say, no, you cannot do that, who have some semblance of order left in their life, Won't care how many boots go on how many throats if it's to keep somebody from burning their street down. And in some cases, the throats will need a boot. But in many cases, the boot will be an abuse, as it always is, and it always has been. When the system fails, nobody will win. Not during the failure The idea that you're just going to waltz through it and be okay and not be hurt and not see people you care about and love hurt is a fallacy. It's a fiction. It's simply not true. And my fear is that the government is actively looking at two aspects of this. Is there any way out? And what do we do if we can't find a way out? And I believe that's why they're in the streets running drills. With people holding up signs that say food. Because they know it's one outcome. They know it's one way this can play itself out. They know it's one way that this stuff can happen. And then they're actively trying to figure out, how do we fix this? And the only way we fix it is revaluing the dollar yet again. Another default. Remember they said, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the United States will default. And it was all bullshit. First of all, they were going to raise the debt ceiling. It was all crap to try to make look like somebody was doing something to curtail spending. Second of all, we have what's called non-discretionary spending. And the government had enough money to pay the non-discretionary spending, which included the interest on the debt and making good on our debt for a long time past the fake deadline that was a fake deadline of the fake deadline. Remember how many times a deadline came and went and nothing happened? Well, even the final deadline when they finally, you know, they still would have paid the interest on the debt. There's plenty of money to do that with for the time being. But what happens when we can't do that anymore? What happens when the nations of the world go, yeah, we're not buying any more of your debt. And the Federal Reserve starts quantitative easing by buying it back to themselves, right? To a point where it becomes stupid. And then they say we can't do a hundred percent of it. We gotta let somebody else buy and then and then you know, somebody like I don't know, Germany says, oh, we'll buy your debt. Uh let's see, uh nine percent interest is what we're gonna want. And then next day it's ten, and then it's eleven. Don't think it can happen? Look at Italy, look at Greece. When you owe a lot of money and you can't pay, you have to pay more for the money that you're never gonna repay anyway. So at some point, the powers that be have to look at this, and they have to say to themselves, how do we keep the whole thing from completely imploding? And this is where Chris says it needs to happen. And in some ways he's right, because if if they figure out a way to do this, they hurt everybody and they keep the boot on everybody's throat at the same time. But one way you do this is you say, the United States is going to create a new currency to solve the financial crisis, and you back it with gold and silver, and there's a million ways to do it, and everybody goes, yay, we're back to honest money, because you're dumb, and you look in your bank account one day, and there's $100,000 in your bank account, and you're happy, yay, and now you've got $100,000 in gold money, and silver money, and it's honest money, and maybe they even Bring back real copper coinage to the treasury and they say we're on a tri metallic standard, fractional, you know, of one of the other, you know, gold is X, silver's Y, and copper's Z, and now we have honest money again and you still have a hundred thousand dollars. You think, yeah, that's good. They fixed it. And a year later, it buys you maybe sixty five to seventy thousand dollars worth of stuff even though it says $100,000. And a year after that, it buys you maybe forty dollars to $50,000 worth of stuff, even though it still says $100. And the stock market numbers look really good because the numbers on the face of the paper stay the same, but the underlying value is exposed for what it is. And then what happens is now we can turn to the debt and make a big chunk out of the debt by using new, stronger money to pay off the debt that was incurred with old, weaker money. And we hit a reset button, and we start the cycle all over again. Does anybody win if we do that? Bankers win. Politicians win. People in power win. And everybody else loses. Does anybody win if the system falls apart? Initially, nobody wins. So which one do you think they're going to try to do? So, when you're saving your silver and gold, folks... It may not be so that one day you can go out and become a new lord of the manor by buying a city park. And it may be. I don't know which one it's going to be. I don't know which one it's going to be. But I can tell you that in one scenario, you're protecting wealth, and in another scenario, you're building wealth. And not doing it in either of the other scenarios is allowing your money to be destroyed while you hold on to it. Now, again... I want to end this today with, with another call. For God's sakes, don't freak out. Don't send me an email and go, I have $40,000 in the bank and I want to get rid of it into something else before inflation takes it. We have time here. We have more time than all the people that want to sell you shit want to tell you. Because this cycle is right where I said it would be. And we have a long way to go to get everybody all in on the table again. And we have to get everybody all in on the table So the elites can figure out which one of the two end games they're going to play and move their money to the new developing world, which is Asia. It's not conspiracy talk. If it was, Jim Rogers wouldn't have his children learning Mandarin Chinese, which he's been doing for a long time. People with the kind of money he has know where this thing is going better than I do, so when you look at where they're going with their money that's where everybody's going that has that kind of money. Peter Schiff has moved everything he's doing offshore and into Australia. Your government is preparing to make sure that you do not have the option the rest of the world has. And it's continuing to make sure you don't have these options now. Do you know that if you are a citizen of any country in the world, and there's more than one person doing this, Peter Schiff just happens to be one, you can call up Peter Schiff's company and they will set you up with a bank account in Perth, Australia, and there will be money in gold in the bank. And you'll have a checkbook and a MasterCard. And when you write your check for Australian dollars or Canadian dollars or whatever, an equivalent value of gold will come out of your account, be cashed in, and the cash will go to the person. And when you make a deposit, they'll buy gold and stick it there for you. You can go spend gold anywhere in the world and earn money anywhere in the world and have it immediately converted to gold in your bank account. The same as making a deposit in the bank right now with us dollars and any citizen of any country in the world today can phone up that company and many others like it and set up an account like that, except citizens of one country. Guess which one it is land of the free home of the brave. You are the only citizens In the world where you can't set that type of an account up. How does that make you feel? Do you think, do you think they're really concerned with taking care of you? Or do you think they're concerned with maintaining power? People say to me, will they ever seize the gold and silver? I don't know. Have it anyway. They won't be able to just take it. In some form or another, they'll have to buy it. That's what they did during the gold confiscation under FDR. And guess what? A lot of people kept their gold, and not one person went to jail for keeping their gold. Not one. They were threatened. In fact, when they when they lifted the ban on owning gold, the, one of the guys, I can't remember his name now, but when he was campaigning, he would stand up holding a bar of gold and say, I dare you to put me in jail. I dare you to put me in jail. Legalize gold. And if you think it's right that you have this law, I'm holding it in my hand right now. Here it is. Come get me. They never even came and got them. And there is something to say for if this is – because if they revalue the currency, we have civil breakdown. And if they don't revalue the currency, we end up with civil breakdown. It's just that one ends up being a lot worse than the other because less people are fooled – but what's his name, Malik Shabazz or whatever? The guy from uh, the new Black Panther Party. You know what he just said about Detroit? They're talking about putting it into receivership because it's going bankrupt, right? And that's not Detroit. It's um, yeah, Detroit. Yeah, Malik Shabazz, uh, head of the new Black Panther, said at a town hall meeting that it was white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, for uh, for them to put the the city into receivership and bring in an outside city manager. And that before they let their city be taking over, they will burn it to the ground. You know what? Leave the racism out of it. How many places do you think where people feel that way, regardless of what color they are? That if you're going to take what I have before you can have what I have, before you can stop giving me what you've been giving me, I'll take it all. You know, I mean, it's a scary concept. It's a scary thought. And it's real. And if you have any doubt, all we have to do is just look at the statistics that are out there for us. Your government right now is telling you that inflation is almost non-existent. That inflation is roughly, I don't know, 2, 3%, 5% at the most. It's, there it was deflation in 2010. And that's because they use the CPI. Consumer Price Index, which is often referred to by honest people as the CP lie. Right now, inflation, if we go to shadow stats, where we look at real inflation versus the lie, and I won't get into how they screw with the CPI, but they do things like, well, if steak goes up high enough, they say, well, people buy chicken when steak goes up anyway, so we'll, we'll just substitute chicken for steak. Okay. There you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, if anybody did this in a public company with public company uh, numbers, they would go to jail for it. The, the, the actual inflation rate 2012 is 6%. 6%. I believe shadow stats. If you look at their methodology, it makes sense. Look at unemployment. The official U.S. government statistic for inf- uh, unemployment is it's falling, and it's down into the 9, 9.8 point something, you know, 8 to 9% range. Um, it's actually more like 23%. We use the broadest measurement where we don't do things like, okay, the guy's not unemployed anymore because he's out of benefits, and, and we end up at like 15 But when you look at people that actually want a job that can't get one or are severely underemployed because they're you know working at Taco Bell when they're really somebody that should be making 50 grand a year because they have a skill set and an education and everything else, it's about 23%. 23% unemployment. Think about that. Two out of ten people can't get a job, or can't get a job that pays a living wage right now. We look at the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar has fallen nonstop with just a few upticks since 1986. It looks like the worst performing stock chart in history if you go look at these these things. And then the big one. The one that we really need to... uh To really think about is that U.S. debt clock. I'm letting it load right now so I can read it to you. Total U.S. national debt, $15.596 trillion. Debt per taxpayer, $137,000. Think about this. Debt per citizen is almost $50,000, but debt per taxpayer is 137. dollars That means that a lot of people aren't paying. And you say, well, there's kids in there and all, but there's also a lot of people in there that they count as taxpayers that aren't paying. You and I, are gonna, the, the people that work and earn a living and have to actually pay this bill, are, are in it for a lot more than $137,000. Federal spending right now, $3.5 annually. Federal budget deficit, $1.3 That means if everything stays the way that it is and nothing accelerates, which of course is not the way that it's happening, that the debt... By this time next year, will be sixteen point nine trillion. I asked you. I asked you in an earlier show this week. What what number's too big? When do when does the rest of the world? What does the United States citizens look at that and go, "Oh my God!" It's um. It's a point where we have to just accept the fact that we're screwed, and that no one has the will to fix the problem, and there's not going to be a true solution. There's going to be one of two different types of impending doom for the U.S. consumer, that we've lived this way for so long that we now actually have several generations of people that believe we're entitled to it. And what do people who feel entitled to something do when you take away their entitlement? Snap a gasket. So what do we do? Well, one, put some of your money in gold and silver. This is why I tell you to do it. Because it's the only financial play that really makes sense to me right now. I don't think you should go put all of your money there. I think if you do that, you are a fool. Because things could spin on a dime. And you could see silver at 12 bucks a year from now. You really could. That's what I'll tell you The people from Goldline won't. It's still a better long-term play. But don't go 100% there because that then you don't have if what if that happens now. You know what I tell you if silver hit 12 bucks, buy a crap load of it. Hey, people would say if silver went to $6, people would be freaking out. I would be dancing naked on my roof if silver went to $6 tomorrow. I would be going a lot closer to all in if silver went to 6 bucks. I don't know that we'll ever see an opportunity like that again, but I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't want to lie to you about that. I know what's eventually going to happen. I have different scenarios, and it's one of those, but I don't know how long it takes to get there. So keep building your future. Keep building your self-sufficiency and your self-reliance. Store your food. Have a clean source of water. Focus on your security. Take care of your family. Build. You might think this is crazy. Build a business. Build a business. There is another side to this. There is a rebuilding. People always rebuild. This concept that the U.S. is going to end up looking like a war zone and then Little House on the Prairie is nonsense. The genie's out of the bottle, folks. People know how technology works. They know what's possible. They are not going to just simply let it go to nothing and then leave it there. No matter how far it burns down, as soon as the fire is out, people will start trying to put it back together. Your fellow citizens and the powers that be. And I can't promise you a rose garden at the end of this. I can't promise you a better tomorrow at the end of this. But I can promise you a better tomorrow for yourself if you're prepared and if you think rationally and calmly all the way through. So build your life and don't freak out. As bad as I've made it out to be, it could be a lot worse. And there's been times in history where it was a lot worse. I really can't tell you when these things are going to occur. But I can tell you with mathematical certainty, there's only a few options. And one is a systemic failure, and the other is a systemic shift. And neither one's good, so protect yourself and be ready. And be ready to stand for at least a month with no help and no support from anyone. If you can do that, if you can do that, you're going to be okay. I really believe that. I don't think that's the, you know, when you get to a month, you should quit, being you know, preparing. But if you can stand for a month, 99% of what can happen, even with all the stuff I talked about today, you're going to be able to figure out how to adapt to the new situation. It's going to be possible to figure out how to do it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.